sermon text is on page 7 of your bulletin. We're in Luke chapter 10, picking up where we left off back in May, beginning with verse 17. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and any, who, any to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then returning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray, as we always do, that you would be with us and be among us, move in our minds and our souls and help us to understand. I pray, Father, that you would help us to see what it does mean to follow you, to be your disciples, to leave behind the things to which we're accustomed and to find life in you instead. Father, help us to do that, we pray, on this day together. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. What brings you joy What brings you joy? Now, wherever you may be on the emotional spectrum, and I know that that's a broad spectrum, certainly among us, there are those among us who who tend to be at the the end of the spectrum that's high in optimism all the time. The the day is sunny, whether there are clouds in the sky or not for you, and, and the rest of us are envious. There are then those of us who, who are on the opposite end of the spectrum, you know, maybe even in all seriousness in the depths of depression. Um, and that, that may be frequent for you. That may be common for you. That may be occasionally uh, what you find in your day. But uh, you, know, you may be on, on various parts of that emotional spectrum. Wherever you are, though, I expect that you have found joy that you have known what it is to rejoice in something or someone. And, and to help you kind of think about it, maybe here's some, I would suggest some categories of joy. So one would be vocational joy. If, so for instance, if you're a teacher, you know, maybe you find joy, you really do find that, that you rejoice when you recognize that a student finally gets it, that the lights come on and, and they understand a subject that you're teaching to them and, and you, you find great satisfaction and joy in that. Or maybe as an attorney, you, you find joy when you see that justice actually does come to pass in your efforts for your clients. Whatever your, your vocation may be, you find joy in it at, at certain points, I hope. Or maybe relational joy. That would be another category, of course, relational joy. You find joy in the simple things like when a friend remembers you and says hello to you or, or writes a note to you. We have a relative in North Carolina who writes a note to every family member for every birthday. 
It's a remarkable thing to me. Um, and that can bring you great, great joy, relational joy. Um, recreational joy would be another one. It's just the simplicity of a, a, your team gets a World Series victory. And that brings you some joy in, in your recreational pursuits. Or maybe just the, the quiet and peace of a hammock on a cool fall day brings you joy. Or a fourth category, my last one, I would suggest there are others, creational joy. For, for some of you, I hope for all of you, really it should be for all of you, but at least for some of you, you find creational joy in things like the beauty of the aurora borealis or the power of Niagara Falls or the intricacies of a snowflake. When you see those creational realities, you find real deep joy because of what you recognize God has done in this world. Lots of different places in which we find joy. But all of those things, I would suggest to you, are merely appetizers. They're just suggestions and reflections along the way of a greater joy that we as human beings ought to know. Now I expect that Jesus could have and would have and probably did find joy in all of these different categories and more of of various types of joy. And yet, what is it that seems to truly and deeply move him to rejoice as you read of it in Scripture? I mean, Luke narrates it here without a doubt. As you read through this, these set of verses, you see the rejoicing that Jesus does deep in his soul. What is it that causes him to rejoice? It's the coming of the kingdom of God. When Jesus sent out these 72 disciples to go out among the villages and towns of of Galilee, their message that they were to carry was a very simple one. Jesus said, Go out into the towns and villages and proclaim, The kingdom of God has come. A really simple, simple message. And in sending 72 of them, what was he doing? He was showing that not only the 12 disciples... But everyone who calls on his name is a bringer of the kingdom of God. Everyone. Man or woman, girl or boy, old or young, rich or poor, uneducated or educated. If the kingdom of God has come into your life, then the kingdom of God will come through your life to the world. This is what brings joy to Jesus. Now, a few weeks ago in September, we spent four weeks talking through what I would call kind of a, a paving the way of a pathway for us as a church and ministry. And, and we talked about those four theological categories, rest, a reason and rest and renewal and restoration. So we, we, we think in terms of reason, that God reasons with us from His Scriptures, from His Word. And then... Through that, he persuades us of the rest that he offers to us in the justification of his grace in Christ. And with that, he brings renewal in our lives. He makes us new in in the sanctifying work of his Holy Spirit. And he promises us that we can anticipate restoration in the glorification of the world yet to come. And do you recognize in those things that there's progress, that that in those four categories, theologically, we're moving from one thing to another. We're making progress. We're going somewhere because it's a picture of the kingdom of God coming in your life. And if the kingdom of God has come in your life, then you are a bearer of, a messenger of, 
the kingdom of God. These 72 returned with joy, Luke tells us, and Jesus joined them in that joy. What makes Jesus rejoice? Here's one thing. He rejoices that his kingdom's work overcomes the world's evil. He rejoices that his kingdom's work overcomes the world's evil. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Now, the prophet Isaiah had foreseen this, as we heard earlier in the Old Testament reading. I always find it curious to to wonder what, what those Old Testament writers and prophets in particular, what they really comprehended about the things they were saying and writing. I think sometimes they knew and sometimes they didn't. I don't know if Isaiah knew at this point what he was exactly saying, but he was speaking to a very particular historical moment in that reading that you heard earlier. He was speaking to the Israelites in their exile to Babylon, and he was trying to encourage them. And he was encouraging them, saying that, that one day God is going to rise up. And on that day, when God rises up against his enemy, you, Israel, will have this taunt to present to the king of Babylon. And some of that taunt goes like this. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low, which is what Babylon had done. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne on high. Babylon had done that. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. All those words perfectly expressive of God's dealing with Babylon in a historical moment in the Old Testament. But Isaiah's words are reflective of something much greater. Not just the mortal king of Babylon, but the immortal enemy of God. And so Jesus offers that thought here. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Isn't that a fascinating thing for him to say when these 72 return, saying, hey, the demons even submit to us in your name, Jesus. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I I wonder what the disciples were thinking when they heard him say that. That's a fascinating thing. Maybe they they thought back to Isaiah. I don't know. But this is what what Jesus is interpreting. He's saying, what you guys have just done is an indication that Satan has fallen, that the king of Babylon has now cast down. The kingdom of God has come. And the 72 who went out saw it coming. Its work will and does overcome the evil of this world. And so Jesus tells them, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy. Now, serpents and scorpions here are are symbolic of evil. Jesus had sent out these 72 earlier in this same chapter as lambs among wolves and serpents. And scorpions. In other words, you as lambs are going to go out into this evil world and you're going to proclaim the message that I have for you. The kingdom of God has come. And my work is going to overcome the evil of the world. And, And the point is to show that the weapons of God's kingdom work are greater than the weapons of the world's evil. What are the weapons that we as the church have to do the work that God gives us to do. I mean, we've talked about this before. I've, I'm sure that I and John both have, 
have said this to you numerous times before. What are the weapons that we have as the church to use? We have the weapons of the Word of God and prayer. We have the weapons of sacrament and song. We have the weapons of holiness and mercy. We have the weapons of love and grace. Those are the weapons that we have to use as we proclaim that the kingdom of God has come. But many Christians don't believe that those weapons are of any use. We received a political mailing at our house this week. I doubt that you did. <laughs> and on that mailing, it was, uh, I mean, it was just a, a mockery of the opponent of this candidate. Now, this particular candidate, I had to look in the tiny, teeny, tiny fine print at the top to see who the candidate was and sent this mailing. This candidate has shown up on my front porch two months ago knocking on the door. And I answered the door, and we had a good conversation on the front porch for, for, I don't know, five or ten minutes. We talked about this candidate's positions on this and that and and so on. And in the conversation, it came up, what what do you do? And I said, well, I'm a Presbyterian minister. And the candidate said, oh, that's awesome. I'm a Christian. I go to this church over here in North Dallas, church I'd heard of before. And... um, you know, that was all good and fine. But then this mailer comes in the mail. And, and this mailer is filled with mockery and ridicule and guilt by association, driving fear, trying to, to, to make me be afraid of this candidate's opponent and, and then vote for this candidate because, well, then I won't have to be afraid. And I thought, you know, if I had the phone number for this person, I'd call them. And I, I don't know what I'd say. As a pastor to a Christian, you stood on my front porch and you told me that you believe in the coming of the kingdom of God and yet you're using the weapons of the world? No. This is not what a Christian does. If you don't believe that God's kingdom work will overcome the evil of the world, then you will be tempted to use the weapons of the world against the world and it will not work. Now, do you know how it was that Christianity survived and even thrived in the early centuries after the death of Christ? Do you know how that was? Because in the ancient Roman Empire, Christianity was not a favored belief. Not at all. I mean, in a a worldly sense, it should not have thrived. It should not have even survived in that culture because it didn't fit in with the Roman pantheon of gods. I mean, there was a pantheon. There were lots of gods. And and Christianity was fine as long as a Christian said, okay, I worship Jesus, but I also will worship the Roman emperor and I'll I'll accept the rest of these gods in the pantheon. They're all fine too. But Christians wouldn't say that. And so they found themselves in trouble for refusing to, to worship the pantheon. And so as a result, they were sent frequently and regularly to their public deaths in the Colosseum of Rome. And for generations... Romans went to church, as it were, to worship at the Colosseum. And their worship service, as it were, was to watch Christians be devoured by lions and slain by gladiators. And over the course of time, something began to happen. And Romans began leaving the Colosseum talking not so much about the the amazing power of Rome but of the amazing strength of Christians and the amazing faith and dignity of these people who are being unjustly put to death because the weapons of the kingdom of God were overcoming the evil of the world. 
And Christianity began to grow and thrive. And it is what it is today because of the weapons of the kingdom of God being wielded by Christians in the early day. Now, I know that evil in this world can seem overwhelming to you. It does to me. I mean, just yesterday, 11 more people were shot to death in a synagogue, was it, in Pittsburgh? For what reason? The evil can just seem overwhelming. The strong people abuse the weak people. Governments turn the other way to avoid confronting injustice when it benefits them. These are the things that we see. So much of it is just beyond your control. But do you rejoice with Jesus to see the kingdom of God coming in your own life? Do others see the repentance and the holiness and the mercy and the grace and the generosity that is being born in your own life because the kingdom of God is doing its work? Jesus rejoices at that. He also rejoices at another thing. He rejoices that His kingdom's children rest eternally secure. The disciples are celebrating their authority over evil. This is very exciting to them when they come back from their their adventure. And Jesus redirects their attention in verse 20. He says, Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, Jesus rejoiced that His kingdom work overcomes the world's evil, including the spirits that are in it. But the point wasn't that the disciples could command the spirits. In fact, they would find that to be harder than they thought that it would be, some of them later on. Rather, Jesus says to them, look, don't be distracted by that. Don't be distracted. No, there's, there's somewhere else where your joy needs to lie, and it's this, that your names are written in heaven. Jesus rejoices that His kingdom's children rest eternally secure. That makes Him joyful. And that's a remarkable thing. I mean, that is, we would say, God's covenant at work. Okay? It doesn't seem right, maybe, for Jesus to say this. I mean, it doesn't seem maybe to be a little bit too much for Him to say that that your names are written in heaven to tell these disciples, hey, look, the ink is already dry. The contract is established. What's done is done. Your names are written in heaven. Does it seem to you to be a bit much for Him to say that and to suggest that there's nothing more that they need to do? Well, it isn't too much for him to say that. And, and it's not too much for two types of people. So some of us need to be told that all the good that we've done is not enough to cover us. In 1995, MacArthur Wheeler decided to rob a bank. And he had the perfect plan for doing it, or so he thought. He had discovered that lemon juice could be used to write secret messages on paper. And it could not be seen until it was revealed with a heat source. So he reasoned, if I cover my face with lemon juice, then I cannot be seen by the security cameras in the bank as long as I stay away from a heat source. This was his thinking. And so he went and he robbed the bank. He he held the teller up at gunpoint and he took the bag of money and he walked out of the bank and he looked straight at the security camera and he waved. And he left. He went home. 
So, of course, the, the police got a hold of the, the security camera recording, and they sent it to the television station. They broadcast it on the local news, and MacArthur Wheeler's friends saw him robbing the bank, and they told the police, you know. And so they showed up at his house that night, and he was incredulous. How could you, how could you know that it was me? Because I wore the juice, he said. <clears throat> I mean, that's, that's absurd, isn't it? Isn't that just it's stupid? And yet some of us think that to get our name written in heaven, we need to cover ourselves with the actions of righteousness. And we, we, we think that we can say to God, hey, I wore the juice. I wore the righteousness that I performed for you. You can't cover yourself. I mean, we, we think that it will hide us from God's sight, but it won't. The gospel is so much better than that. The gospel is infinitely better than that. If by faith you are in Christ, then you are covered. And your name is written in heaven. That's one type of person that that needs to, to hear this. The other type is this one. Some of us need to be told that all that we've failed to do is not enough to sink us. You sin. And you fail. And you feel guilty. And you point the finger at yourself and you feel the weight of it. And yet the gospel is better. The gospel is so much better than than your guilt. By faith, you are in Christ and your name is written in heaven. That's amazing. Rejoice. Rejoice. I mean, what is God's covenant after all? It's really important because we need, to, we need to have our theology straight to understand these things. What is God's covenant? It is that He is faithful to His promise to redeem even when His children fail in the pursuit of that redemption. God is faithful in His promise to redeem even when His children fail in their pursuit of that redemption. And they fail again and again and again. Yet God is faithful. Now there are those in the Christian community who would, who would hear that and they would say, that, and they're going to use their big word, they're going to say, that's antinomianism. Some of you know that word. I hope most of you don't. It means anti, against nomos, law, against law. That is not against the law as though a, a breaking law, but that it, it sounds, it's, it's someone who is against law, like opposed to law altogether. I don't believe in law at all. I don't need to follow it at all. Someone would hear that, that description of covenant and say, that's antinomianism. It's not the gospel. No, it is the gospel. God is faithful to His promise to redeem, even when His children aren't. He still pursues them because their names are written in heaven. Eugene Peterson died this past week. I hope that you know of Eugene Peterson, aware of his death. He was a Presbyterian minister 30 years or so in in one church, a seminary professor. He wrote a bunch of really awesome books. And he died this past week, 85 years old. And and his uh, his son was at his bedside and and kind of reporting through a blog, I think, to to people who, who really cared deeply about Pastor Eugene Peterson. His son wrote this about his, his dad. He said, It appears that he is talking with people that no one else can see. These, I believe, are not hallucinations. Rather, he is being prepared for something too glorious for words. 
I've heard of this before happening on a deathbed of a believer who their, their, their soul is going to heaven and they're still alive and yet they're, they're perceiving, they're talking to people who are in heaven. I've heard of this happening before. I totally believe it. And this is what was happening with Eugene Peterson. And his son said that among, his last, among dad's last words were these. And this is so Eugene Peterson with a smile on his face. He said, bring it on. How could he say those words on his deathbed? Because he knew that his name was written in heaven. And he rejoiced. Jesus rejoices because his kingdom's children rest eternally secure. He also rejoices that his kingdom's revealing shows the sovereignty of God. Verse 21 gives us a little glimpse into the the inner workings of the Trinity. It's fascinating. Here, verse 21, In that same hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and reveal them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. This is interesting, isn't it? It's interesting. Anytime you get to see a little picture of the Son and the Spirit and the Father interacting together, the 72 have come back from their mission. Jesus has sent His disciples out. They've come back. And just what He knew would happen would happen because the Spirit was at work. And now the Son and the Spirit and the Father are talking to each other we knew this was going to happen. We've planned it all along. Here it is. Aren't we rejoicing together? This is the Trinity at work. It's a remarkable thing. Now, for you and me, the question is, do you want to understand what it means to be a disciple? Do you want to understand what it means to follow Jesus? Do you want to grow into those roles of servant and intercessor and follower? Do you want to more and more be able to pay the price of being a disciple, then you need to recognize, you need to know, you need to believe that the sovereignty of God is behind the revealing of His kingdom. Verse 22, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. No one, no thing in this world can open your eyes to see Christ. Only by the sovereign will of God can it happen. In 1981, Bob Edens gained his eyesight in Columbia, South Carolina. He was 51 years old. And he had been blind since birth. For 51 years, his world had been nothing but darkness. He had graduated from college, from Furman University, by reading Braille with his fingers. He had gotten married. He and his wife had a daughter, but he had never seen his wife or his daughter or anything for 51 years until surgery, which I suppose nowadays has become somewhat routine, surgery for a detached retina and a corneal transplant 
gave him sight. And he could see. He found it overwhelming. <clears throat> I want to read a few of his words to you. This is, what, this is how he described it. He said, he said I, have no, I have no words for this. I'm amazed by yellow. Red is my favorite color. I just can't believe red. Grass is something I have had to get used to, to see each individual green blade, the birds flying through the air. It's like starting a whole new life. It's the most amazing thing in the world to see things you, you never thought you would see. Can you imagine that? He goes on. He says, I like nothing better than seeing a jet plane flying across the sky, leaving a vapor trail. Do you think twice about that when you see that? And of course, sunrises and sunsets. I saw some bees the other day, and they were magnificent. And I jumped a covey of quail. I had heard quail before, but to see them flying, oh, what an experience. I saw a truck drive by in the rain the other day and throw a spray of water into the air. It was marvelous. And did I mention, he said, genuine rapture in his voice, I saw a falling leaf just drifting through the air. I can't wait to get up each day to see what I can see. Isn't that amazing? Now, at some point in your Christian life, you should experience some of that. At some point. Now, I know, I realize totally that some of you were given spiritual eyes before birth. And that's what we pray for all of our baptized. Every time we baptize a child, we're praying that God, by His, His Spirit, would have been at work in this child before birth. That this child would, as we say, never know a day that they didn't know that God was their Heavenly Father and follow Him in faith. Some of you have the great blessing of having given, having given spiritual eyes before you can ever remember. And that's an amazing blessing. But even you should have at some point in your life this sort of experience of, of marveling at the details of the gospel, of, of thinking, I, I just I find it so hard to believe I'm amazed that God is willing to reason with me in my mind and my heart through his word. Just like he reasoned with Isaiah, he comes and talks to me through his word. That should amaze you. You should think sometimes, it is, it's almost incredible to me. And you should never say the gospel is incredible because it's not incredible. If it were incredible, you wouldn't, be a, you wouldn't have life. It's credible. But you should say the gospel is amazing to me that, that God, by grace, would justify me. He would declare me to be righteous in his sight, not because of anything I did, but because Jesus is righteous. That's amazing. I mean, that should astonish you sometimes. You should sometimes wake up in the morning and, th- and, th- and think to yourself, I can't wait to see what part of the gospel God's going to show me today. Now, I, I, I know that that's kind of idealistic. I don't think of me that I do that every day. I don't. And I know you don't. But we all should more often, shouldn't we? We should be amazed because of the way that God works. I mean, if you want to understand what it means to be a disciple... To follow Jesus, then you must know this. God is at work. And he's doing great things. And so Jesus rejoices at at one last thing here. He rejoices that his kingdom's greatness blesses those who look upon it. 
Verse 23. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Now this is evidently a private moment with the twelve. I I don't know the dynamics of the, the, the situation here. Seventy-two have come back from their adventure and they're all rejoicing together. It's amazing. And, and Jesus turns to the twelve, the twelve, you know the twelve, Matthew, Mark, and so on. And he says to them these things. Because evidently they are seeing something great, but maybe they don't realize it. What are they seeing? Again, they're seeing the coming of the kingdom of God. You know, if, if you are a disciple, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you have seen greatness in the coming of the kingdom of God into your own life. It's come into your life. It's, it's caused you to pause before the idolatry of this world. It's caused you to pause before the temptations that you see before you and in which you're tempted to find rest and renewal in all these meaningless things that the world offers to you. And the gospel has turned you away from those things. That's the coming of the kingdom of God in your life. And that's a remarkable thing. That's a great work. But surely the prophets and the kings of whom Jesus speaks saw such things in their own lives. What was it that they desired to see? What was it that the twelve disciples were seeing? What was it that they desired to hear that the twelve disciples were hearing? What was it? It was the sights and sounds of the Son of God establishing in history the church through which His kingdom comes. It was Peter's confession in Matthew 16. Jesus asked him and the disciples, who who do people say that I am? They came up with all these other answers. And Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And Matthew came up with with the right answer. He said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say in response? He said, that's right. And on the rock of that confession, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is what the prophets and kings desired to see. They lived at a time in redemptive history, as do we. But they lived at a time when they were looking forward to something yet to come. And what were they looking forward to? They were looking forward to God building His church, the Redeemer coming and being the one upon whom the church would be established. In Hebrews 11, the writer tells us that Abel and Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Moses, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and more, he says, all of these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. From afar. That's good country language. They saw them from afar. They didn't get to hear them. They didn't get to see it actually happen, but they knew it was coming and they longed for it. They desired to see what these disciples got to see. Peter writes about it in 1 Peter 1, verse 10. I can't resist reading these words to you. This is amazing. Peter writes, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to come. 
It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Prophets and kings desire to see it happen. Angels even long to look into it to understand what is God going to do to redeem this world. God is bringing His kingdom to bear on this world by establishing His church and working through it. And that is amazing, considering those of us who are in it. I mean, it's absurd that I should stand here and offer a sermon to you. It's absurd. It really is. Two weeks from now, we'll have an ordination service for Alex, Dean. That'll be a joyful occasion. And he will feel the weight of the absurdity. You will, Alex, I promise. I mean, it's absurd that you should stand here and proclaim a sermon to to a congregation of people. But you should feel the weight of the absurdity too. It's absurd that you should stand in your neighborhood among your neighbors and those near, near to whom you live and that your words and the holiness of your life, okay, holiness of your life, to, to whatever degree you have it, God will use it. He's grace covenant, remember? It's absurd to think that those things that God has given to you would have some effect for His kingdom, but they do. It's absurd. And yet, this is what God does. The greatness of God's kingdom is coming to fruition. And it blesses all who look upon it. So, disciple of Jesus, do you find joy in the things that bring joy to Jesus? His kingdom's work overcomes the world's evil. His kingdom's children rest eternally secure. His kingdom's revealing shows the sovereignty of God. God is at work. And His kingdom's greatness blesses all who look upon it. Follow Him in these things and know the joy of your Savior. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that You would help us to believe these things. Help us to follow you. Father, work in and through us, even despite us, and make it possible that we might be bringers of your kingdom. Lord, we recognize the absurdity of that, but we also recognize your power, and we trust you for that. Would you work in and through our church and through your church to bring your kingdom to bear in this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.